The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. You've got questions, we've got answers. Let's do it. Phone lines are open wide. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, biblical scholar and cultural commentator, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. Call 866-34-TRUTH to get on The Line of Fire. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks so much for joining us. We've got our phone lines wide open, phone lines available for you to call in right now. So any question of any kind that ties in in any way with anything we ever talk about on the broadcast, anything I've written about, anything a guest has brought up, anything where I have any area of expertise, anything where you're going to challenge me or question me, by all means, Give us a call. My joy to take your call, friend or foe alike, 866-348-7884. Let's start in Los Angeles. Dr. Philip, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi. uh, Thanks for taking my call. My question is that Jeremiah moved to the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, So at the time of Jesus, the high priest, when he takes the blood at uh, Yom Kippur, to sprinkle it over what the Holy Holies was empty, because there is no Ark of the Covenant. Yes, that's correct. Uh, and Jewish literature confirms that the Ark of the Covenant was not returned from Babylon. So you didn't have the Ark of the Covenant, you didn't have the uh, the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments, so you, so you didn't have that. So the question is, when they were sprinkling the blood, what did they sprinkle it on? Yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, we, we don't know. You have rabbinic literature that starts to be written down maybe about 150 years after the destruction of the temple, and some of it is passing on earlier oral traditions. But a lot of what's described kind of goes on as if everything was normal and the temple was still standing, which was not the case. So some of it is idealized, but but we don't have anything that tells us factually for sure. It's a great question, but one that... Uh, one that does not have a, have a biblical answer for us. But you'd have to think that all the time you're doing it, you'd have a feeling something was missing, wouldn't you? I mean, it's once a year. But yeah. wouldn't you think if you're the high priest that, okay, we're doing this, but something profound is missing here that would give you that sense of incompleteness, That would, uh, even though God worked through it and they rebuilt the temple and so on and so forth, but something was definitely missing. And... Um, we don't, we don't have any factual answer. We can say for sure this is what happened. So it's a great question, but one without a factual answer. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Yeah, I wish I had. Now, let me just say this. If I claim to have some tradition somewhere, something passed on to me and put out a video, oh, those go viral when you supply information no one else has and it's esoteric. It, it would just be a myth, though. Be a myth. Hey, thank you for the call. You know, I one thing I haven't done is done an in-depth study of all of the available rabbinic traditions that reference any of this. I mean, you have rabbinic traditions plainly saying that this was not there, that you didn't have the Urim and the Tumim, that those were not there uh, in the in the time of the the Second Temple, that you didn't have the Shekinah the divine presence like you had with the first temple or the fire consuming the sacrifices. These various things are listed. And of course, prominently the Ark of the Covenant. So they acknowledge these things were not there. 
And then the question comes up, looking at the prophecy in Haggai, how is it that the second temple can be greater than the first temple? And one answer is, well, it was beautified by Herod, and, and certainly part of the description in Haggai is of the beautifying of the temple. But is physical beautifying the same as, as God's glory filling the temple? Obviously not. Now, others say, well, it, it stood longer than the first temple, but when is that associated so much with God's kavod, his glory presence? It really isn't. Of course, my answer is that Jesus himself was there, the Messiah himself. That was the Lord visiting the temple spoken of in Malachi 3. That's where the Holy Spirit was poured out in Shavuot, Pentecost. So that's how the glory of the second temple was greater than the glory of the first. All right. And by the way, we may take some questions if you want to post them on YouTube or post them on Facebook. We may pull up some of your questions from there as well. Uh, Let us go to Cade in Louisiana. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, uh, how you doing? Doing very well, thanks. All right, my question refers to the nature of altar calls. There's lots of different beliefs ranging from when the sermon's over, you say, raise your hand and repeat this prayer after me if you want to be saved, to the view of we're not going to do any of that. The preaching alone should allow the listener to know what they have to do to be saved. What are your thoughts on what we should be doing for our altar calls? Uh, Great question, and I'll, I'll give a little history as well. Number one, it is biblical at the right time to call for a response, right? So in Acts 2, Peter preaches, calls on the people, uh, calls them out for their guilt. They say, what do we do? He says, repent and be baptized, right? That's Acts 2, 38. Uh, So you have these calls for response elsewhere. Sometimes the message is preached and there's no reference to a response, you know, Acts 16, as, as the jailer is under deep conviction and the fear of God, what must I do to be saved? And uh, right then and there, there's the answer. Uh, believe, believe in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved, and then they're baptized. And then Jesus would, would call for a response at times, follow me, right? You know, what should I do? Sell your possessions, follow me. So calling for a response at the right time is biblical. It's not that we always call for a response because sometimes the fruit's not ripe. Sometimes the setting's not ripe, but it's very appropriate to call for response. And sometimes we're negligent if we don't call for a response because the word's been preached, people are under conviction, they need to know what to do. So the question is, what is the nature of the response? I think altar calls can be great, but for me, an altar call means people coming to the altar to take time to respond to God. So if, if I'm preaching the gospel, I'm not primarily an evangelist, but let's say I'm in a setting where I'm preaching in an evangelistic way and calling people to get right with God. I would lay out clearly what it means, what it means to follow Jesus. I, I would have them understand that it's a brand new life. You die to sin and you now live to God. It's all by grace. It's all a free gift. And I'd say, come up here, get right with God. Why come up? Because you're just like baptism. You're, you're calling them to, to make a decision. You're calling them to to take a stand, you're calling them to make public profession. But then, uh, so they're stepping out from where they are. If they can't step out from where they are, it's it's unlikely that they really wanna follow the Lord that much. That being said, when I would do a meeting like that, I'd leave people for a while to just talk to the Lord. I'd tell them, you ask him to forgive you. You ask him, so between you and God, the idea that you have to lead them through a a formalized prayer or have them repeat a formula 
to me is not biblical. You know, that that's what you have to do. What I may do is after, and I've done this, especially overseas meetings, when mm-hmm. people have had time, when I've called them to get right with God, and sometimes they're standing there, tears pouring down their cheeks, they're really dealing with the Lord, you know, then I might say, all right, let's pray this together just to kind of articulate things. But to me, that's just sealing what's been happening in their hearts. The idea of, okay, just come up, pray this prayer after me is often very superficial, is, is often inoculating because the people now think that somehow they're okay. You know, they said the words and there hasn't really been contrition, repentance. So I don't believe in leading people in a prayer unless you're just helping articulate the right theology so that they're making confession of sin and putting their trust in the Lord Jesus, etc. So that's, that's my take there. Now, when Charles Finney would have meetings, he would have what was called an anxious seat. And that was criticized. But his purpose was if you're, God's dealing with you and you're struggling, well, come sit here. It was, it was again, this someone identifying in a certain way. But what he might do after a meeting is Finney might say, if God's dealing with you, then I want you to come back tomorrow night. Or we're going to this other building in an hour and you come so that it wasn't just a matter of, okay, pray this prayer. We got you signed up like a high, you know, sales pitch. Okay, shake your hand. Okay, next. That to me is very destructive and very superficial. And what happens is many people end up joining the church like that. And we're trying to disciple them and they haven't ever been converted. They, They haven't really come under conviction of sin or really come to know the Lord or really bowed the knee to the Lordship of Jesus. So... Let, let the Lord work deeply. Let the thing uh, sit and let there be true dealings of God in the person's life. Um, and then like with one-on-one evangelism, there, there are times to call for response and there are others not. So you have to really learn where this person is at and ask them, do you want to get right with God? Do you want to get right with God now? Um, I'll, I'll tell you this last story. I believe in urgency. I believe there is a time where you really press because the Holy Spirit's on you, and it, maybe it's a life and death situation. Maybe this person doesn't get right with God, they, they go out of there and, and, and never come back. Uh, but I remember I was in Phoenix, Arizona, about to debate a famous rabbi, it was 1995, and there was a Jewish believing woman in the congregation, and her parents were there. Maybe they were in their 70s, something like that. And they, they said, we're really leaning towards believing what you believe. Uh, but we're just not 100% sure. I said, well, come to the debate. Now, this is a very different setting. You're not going to have an altar call in a debate, right? Mm-hmm. But I said, I want you to come and hear both sides, and, and then I want you to be sure. Because I, I really felt, okay, if God's working in their lives, I don't have to pray. Okay, now, now just let the Lord work. Let the truth get deeper in them. And thankfully, they went to the debate, and they, they did come to faith subsequently. So altar calls done the right way, where you're calling people to get right with God and there's time for them to really seek him and repent and, and, and let God work in their hearts, that's wonderful. Altar calls that are just kind of a formality, you know, say this prayer, the people are kind of yawning, like, oh, I confess my sin, looking at their watch. Nah, I, I think that does more harm than good in many cases. So that's my kind of long answer for you. Definitely, thank you. Very helpful. All right, appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. All right. We've got less than a minute before the break, so we'll come back and be going all over the country, taking your different calls. 
Just another reminder. I'll keep reminding till we get everybody signed up. I really think you want to get our emails. Why? Because they'll enrich you. They'll help you. They'll keep you updated. You'll be watching the news. Oh, this is so frustrating. And here comes our email. Well, we just address that. Here's how we address this. And you're like, oh, praise God. There it is. And you've got something you can share with others. So let us be a resource to you. Go to askdrbrown, askdrbrown.org. Sign up for our emails. Tell your friends to sign up, right? And when you do, we want to send you a neat mini book, an ebook, How to Pray for America. Okay, right back with your call. Stay right here. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to the broadcast, 866-348-7884 is the number to call. Any question of any kind that we can help you with, by all means, give us a call. We go to Ryan in Yukon, Oklahoma. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. I just want to say again, I appreciate your very, very comprehensive teaching ministry. Well, thank you. Yes, sir. Today's question that I have, I think that you probably answered it before, but it's the difficult passage in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 that seems to be paralleled in the book of Jude, and specifically the, the verses, they almost say exactly the same thing, talking about they did not blaspheme the glorious one. I have read probably 12 brief commentaries, and they are all over the place, uh, and I have not heard anything that satisfies me in my spirit about exactly what is being said about blaspheming the glorious ones, and I wanted to hear what you had to say about those two passages. Yeah, so here's, here's the challenge, Ryan. When you have something like this, one of these passages that ha- have been examined uh, in, in massive depth by top scholars for many years, right? And they focused on it and some have written doctoral dissertations on it or, you know, their commentary has a 20-page discussion on it. Unless, in, unless you really, really can dig and, and investigate and sift through everything, it's difficult to come to a definitive conclusion. You know, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on one Hebrew word in its ancient Near Eastern context, and that helped me to really learn and understand the usage of the word. But it was, it was two years of intensive work and study. And so my, my problem is this, to be candid. There are the different views, but to say that I can clearly land on one versus another, and you're going to go like, yeah, that's it. That satisfies me. That answers it. It's somewhat unlikely. I mean, the overall meaning is clear in terms of uh, us watching our speech and conduct and how in in these various settings there's so so michael says to to satan the lord rebuke you rather than just rebuking him directly uh then you have these others that are totally lawless and will just blaspheme and speak of things they don't know 
So there, there's some respect or understanding for what we're dealing with in the spiritual realm. I mean, that's clear. And, and to not have some arrogance in, in our speech or attitude. You know, there's, there's Martin Luther saying that the, you embarrass the devil, you can chase him away by passing gas. You know, that's, that's inappropriate. You know, that, that kind of stuff yeah. is just misguided. I mean, it's typical Luther. With all of his genius and spirituality, there's the, the carnal and the, the crass and, and worse. But there, even if we are dealing with powers of darkness, if there's not an understanding of their power that we can really get smashed and we don't know it, that's, that's like a secondary deduction. But honestly, you know, if you've read the, the commentaries, uh, the word biblical commentary is really excellent on Second Peter and Jude. Have you looked at Richard Balkum there? No, I haven't, but I will. Yeah, How do you spell his last name? Yeah, B-A-U-C-K-H-A-M. He's got some of the okay. very best uh, commentary on Second Peter and Jude. Richard Balkum, B-A-U-C-K-H-A-M. I find his views on these passages to be very persuasive, but I've not studied them sufficiently to say, here's my definitive conclusion. But, but I really like the direction Balcom goes on most of this, okay? Yes, sir. Thank you very much. I'll look into that, and I appreciate your time, Dr. Brown. Sure thing. Yep. And listen, where I can be dogmatic or clear, so I've studied this, come to this conclusion, I'll do it. I've come to controversial conclusions all the time. That's fine. We lose followers over these things. That's fine. But where there's a healthy academic debate and I haven't weighed in sufficiently, you know, you gotta, gotta lay out the different possible views. Okay, uh, let's go over to Brian in Fort Worth, Texas. That's where, that's where I'm heading later today. Good to talk to you, Brian. Hey, good to talk to you, a Mercy Culture member. That's it, man. You should see me on Sunday morning, God willing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll be there, I'll be there. Uh, thank you for taking my call. The reason for the call, um, I, it's kind of a two-part question. They go hand-in-hand. Hand. So in Revelation, I believe it's 19 or 20, I don't know the exact one, after the 1,000-year reign, Satan will be released to deceive the nation. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that there will be a second fall of man? And then to kind of go and hand, marry that question, in heaven, does that mean that there could be sin then Satan sinned while he was in heaven. Got it. Yep. Excellent questions. So, number one, there will not be a second fall of man, but fallen human beings will rebel. So, this is what we understand, if, if you hold to this end-time viewpoint. So, Jesus returns. We're caught up to meet him and descend together with him, where he sets up his kingdom on the earth. So, we are resurrected. We are in resurrected bodies, and we will never sin again. You say, well, well, why is that? It's because we've made our choice. We've asked God to save us. It's not a matter of being tested or tried anymore. We've said, God, save us. We want to be yours forever and ever. We will be in perfect resurrected bodies and with him forever in eternity. We're in an environment where sin will be absent and the presence of God will be everywhere. So there's no possibility of us falling away. There was the option that the angels had and some rebelled like Satan. There's the option that human beings had, but we will have set our course by then. We've gone through the test, we've asked God for mercy, and we're saved forever, 
and untouchable. There's no possibility of sin, nor will there be temptation to sin. As for those that enter the millennial kingdom, Revelation 19 seems to speak of total destruction of the earth, but Zechariah 14 speaks of the survivors of the nations that attack Jerusalem. So obviously there'll be devastating destruction on the earth, but there will be a remnant of humanity that enters into the millennial kingdom on the earth where, where God is worshipped in Jerusalem, where the word of the Lord goes out from Jerusalem to all the world, and where the world becomes educated in the ways of God, and we, the believers, help rule and reign with Jesus. This is as we understand the, the premillennial view. And so these people on the earth are not resurrected. They can actually die. And if Isaiah tells us if they die at 100 years old, they're just considered a child. You know, that's how long people will live. So it'll be the time when the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. That will all be happening. But there is the possibility of sin. And when Satan is loosed at the end of the thousand years, if we take this as, as literal, when he's loosed at the end of the thousand years, he goes once more, deceives the nations, and a multitude rebels against God and is destroyed. And then at that point is the second resurrection and those people resurrected that are believers will go on with the Lord forever like we do. You say, why does that even happen? There may be many reasons, but one reason to me is it is the ultimate vindication of God. Meaning we always have this argument, well, I would believe in God, but there's so much suffering on the earth. Well, I would believe in God, but there's so much sin. Why did he create a world like this? So here you'll have an environment with paradise on earth, once again, God accessible and righteousness reigning on the earth. And yet still people will choose to rebel against him. And that'll be the final proof that it's because of sinful human nature, not because of something that God failed in in some way. So that's how I understand the questions and the passages. All right? All right. Awesome. Well, hey, look forward to seeing. I don't know if I'll... No, you are. I, I hear it's pretty hot right now in Fort Worth, huh? Yeah, it's. I think it's supposed to hit 105 today. Got it. All right. Well, I'll make sure I wear short sleeve shirt. Okay. Thanks, Brian. God bless you. All right. Thank you. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to um, Angela in Massachusetts. Thanks for calling the line of fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. Hey there. Yes, I, I have a question about does a Revelation eleven nineteen does that confirm that the covenant the ark of the covenant where it is it says then the temple of God was open in heaven and the ark of the covenant was seen in his temple and there were lightning and dark noise and thundering and earthquakes and great heat steel. So ah. is that saying that the covenant is in heaven right now? No, it's it's not saying that the earthly ark is in heaven. It is ah, saying that there is a heavenly ark and a heavenly tabernacle. Remember, oh, yeah, Moses was told to build the tabernacle based on the pattern That's that right. he saw. So God showed him. But if, yeah. if you look yeah. in Hebrews 9, it talks yeah. about the heavenly items had to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So there is an ark of the covenant in heaven. In heaven right now, right? Exactly. And and, and so the, where's the earthly one? We don't know. Like you We said. don't know. Now exactly. I That's I it. Very good, Dr. Brown. All right. Hey, thank you so much. Appreciate the question and the enthusiasm. All right. And we're going to Australia next. Glad you were able to call in, sir. 
Uh, we couldn't get you earlier in the week, but want to get your question on Isaiah 53. Uh, Ariel, I'm, I'm looking at the board here, liking the question. So Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9, look at what it says. Very, very interesting passage. It goes through the earthly tabernacle, what was there. These preparations have been made, priests would go in, etc. Uh, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place was not open fully as long as the first section is still standing. Um, and it goes on and on. But when Christ appeared as a high priest for the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of his creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Yeah, so that's how I understand those passages. We'll be right back. the line of fire with your host dr michael brown get on the line of fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH here again is dr michael brown thank you so much for joining us on the line of fire you know we just released another video refuting the teachings of counter-missionary rabbi tovia singer that have confused a lot of believers sowed seeds of doubt so we're helping to expose the fallacies of his videos get people back to biblical truth, dig into the Hebrew together. We take a lot of time, really work hard on these, but we're hearing from folks that are really being helped. Their faith is being restored. The confusion is lifting. Their confidence in God is coming back. Very, very gratifying to read these reports. So again, to all of you who stand with us, who support us, who help us, thank you so much. And if, if you've been blessed by the broadcast, help us reach more people. Go to Ask drbrown.org. Just click on donate and any gift, large or small, makes it makes a difference because every dollar is prayed over. We use it for the glory of God. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to uh, Sydney, Australia. Not sure how to pronounce your name. So could you give me a hint here? Uh, it's Charlie. It is. C-H-L-I-E. Okay. Got it. All right. Well, nice, nice to talk with you, Charlie. Thank you. Um, so, uh, I have a question. Um, so, my question basically is in Isaiah fifty-three, um, which is which the, the Jews actually say it's the um, it's uh, Israel, but we say it's obviously the Messiah. Um, so. In Isaiah 53, um, is there any rabbinical... Uh, so, okay, so my question is, is, is there any rabbinical uh, literature that says that, in, that, the, that the Messiah is God or uh, uh, in Isaiah 53 or that the, that the Messiah... I will be crucified. Um, is there any basically rabbinical literature? Or should I say, well, what do the rabbis say? And what do the rabbinical literature? Yeah. So um, if, if, yeah. If, you go, if you go to my website, the Jewish website, realmessiah.com, realmessiah.com, 
uh, you can scroll through Messianic prophecies and you'll see a lot there about Isaiah 53. So you'll, you'll find that to be very helpful. Uh, a lot of resources there. Uh, now, remember that rabbinic literature is written well after the time of the New Testament. So you are going to have conflicting viewpoints and interpretations. Early rabbinic literature is varied. Uh, some interpret it of an individual within Israel like Moses. Some interpret it of the Messiah. Some interpret it of the righteous remnant within Israel or the nation as a whole. So you have varied interpretations in the early literature. When you get about a thousand years after the time of Jesus, the, the commentaries all argue that it refers to Israel or the righteous remnant within Israel. However, starting in verse 13, the ancient tradition called the Targum, which is an Aramaic translation slash paraphrase, that applies yeah. it to the Messiah. And uh, writing in about the 16th century, Rabbi Moshe Alshech, applying 52.13 to 15 very specifically, says that we all agree this is about the Messiah, which is very interesting. And, and then yeah. he interprets 53 but, itself differently. Uh, yeah. There are many but, rabbinic traditions, though, that the Messiah will suffer. Many, many, many that he will suffer. Okay, so what's, what would be the earliest, what, what actually, what would be the earliest tradition or what would be uh, the earliest literature that the, the Messiah will actually uh, die on the, you know, will be crucified or um, what would be, you know, where can I go? Well, what sources? Well, I mean, well, where can I go? Well, I mean. Yeah, so the, the rabbis don't believe the Messiah will be crucified. They do teach in many sources that he will suffer. Uh, uh, that is, that's widely taught, and rabbinic literature has two messiahs that it speaks of, Messiah, son of David, who rules and reigns, Messiah, son of Joseph, who suffers and dies, uh -huh. and Rabbi Moshe Alshech, to uh, commenting on Zechariah 12.10, says that Messiah, son of Joseph, will die to make perfect atonement for Israel. So those things are found in rabbinic literature. Uh, so I guess you don't have... Uh, what's your own background, sir? Oh, well, I am a Protestant, so... Right, right. So uh, I guess you don't have, then, any of my five volumes on answering Jewish objections to Jesus, correct? Um, I don't know. Okay, so, so here's the thing, sir. Go to realmessiah.com because you'll find... Uh, lots of teaching, whole teaching series where I take you through these different subjects, debates with rabbis where I present them, answers to objections. So if you want more, there are five volumes I wrote on answering Jewish objections to Jesus. Volumes two and three would be the ones you really want to look at. Two and three, where I cite lots of rabbinic literature. But right here for free, you can get a lot of that material. Now remember, the rabbis don't agree with us. So the earliest Jewish statement about the Messiah being crucified is the New Testament. These are Jewish writers talking about the Jewish Messiah being crucified and saying, hey, look back in the Hebrew Scriptures. It speaks of how he will suffer. It speaks of how he will die, how he will rise. Does it say specifically crucified? It, it could say that in Psalm 22. There's an argument that can be made there. Do the rabbis interpret that as the crucifixion of the Messiah? No. Obviously, we say they got that wrong. 
if they if they recognized the Messiah had to be crucified and rise from the dead, they would have been more inclined to believe in Jesus. So realmessiah.com, I think if you explore the site, you'll get a ton of helpful information there. All right. Thank you for the call very much. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go over to Ariel in Syracuse, New York. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, thank you for having me. Sure thing. Um, I, on another channel during an interview, you mentioned that the structure of leadership of the first century church um, doesn't really have resemblance on the modern day. So could you just elaborate on that for me and um, and point to me uh, a resource where I can go into a little bit more depth on that? Got it. Okay, so a a few things. The New Testament does not explicitly say, this is how you run a local congregation. This is the leadership structure. In other words, it lays out certain principles, certain offices or, or places of service, but it doesn't say this is, how you, this is how you structure this or that. And I believe one reason is that cultures are tremendously different in terms of how they handle authority and how they govern and things like that. And this body that God's building has to be able to function in all these different societies. Hence, there are guidelines and principles as opposed to absolutely specific you know, here, like, here's how you run the company, right? Here's the flow chart with the company. You don't have that in the New Testament books, but I believe that's, that's also by divine design. What, what is clear is that our modern way of just kind of having a one-person show and, and not having a team expression with that person, I don't mean that the pulpit always has to be shared, but to not have a team of elders who govern, uh, to not have a team of gifted people who minister and everything comes through one person, that clearly is not the New Testament model, which does have senior leaders, but they're part of a team. I believe that's very important. I also believe it's, it's very important that we, uh, that we understand that these leaders are gifted by God as servants. So there's not this abusive, if you don't listen to me, you know, you get in trouble kind of thing. It's more that the, the leadership comes by anointing and grace. And I do believe that apostolic and prophetic ministries do continue, that there are people who are spiritual pioneers and planters. There are people who are bringing prophetic messages and that we should have that as part of, our, a part of the body. Um, as, but, but again, I believe there's flexibility. I believe that God works in many different structures. I was just talking to a pastor about this, that I've, I've ministered in house churches and mega churches, and I see God working in, in both of these settings. Um, there's not one book in particular, Ariel, that, okay, I don't focus on leadership structure that much. Years back when I taught on it more, there were different, different things I, I looked at. Um, there's not one book in particular. I say, oh, this is, this is the one uh, that says it all. But I just want to see if this is still available. It's a book I used many years ago. Uh, Frank DiMazio. Yeah, check out. It looks like there are, there are a bunch of his books here. Uh, check out Frank DiMazio. D-A-M-A-Z-I-O. Frank DiMazio, The Making of a Leader, uh, different books, prophetic ministry, things like that. Uh, he had a lot of really practical stuff 
If you look up his books, you'll find lots of different ones. Maybe one will kind of deal with leadership structure. And again, just, just look at it and digest it. See what you get out of it. Hey, thank you very much for the call. I appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to James in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, how are you? Doing very well, thank you. Um, Dr. Brown, I am a, I am a street evangelist um, in Atlanta, and I just wanted to, to find out with you if um, you know you're 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 involved in the ministry. If you ever have ran into the the Black Hebrew Israelites, oh yeah, and, yes sir, and there you know there it's a lot of them that are. Uh, out there in, in in Atlanta, and uh, you know they're 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 nearly under a curse of preaching uh, false doctrine, a, a false gospel, yeah, and believe that you're saved only by the law, and and, and it's very very dangerous from yeah angry watching angry full of hate as well, especially uh, to to people of non color like like me. Yeah. Extremely. So, and, James, and, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I've got a break coming up, but let, let me let me start here. Then we'll come back on the other side of the break. Uh, check out on Ask Doctor Brown YouTube channel, Ask Dr. Brown on YouTube. Uh, search for Black Hebrew. That's probably all you need to put, uh, and you'll see a confrontation I had with them in in Charlotte. I had one decades ago in New York City that I've often shared about. But this is one in Charlotte, North Carolina a few years ago. I was waiting for family to arrive to uh, go to a restaurant and saw them. We had it out for a bit. And then I'll, I'll, I'll give a reference or two of some helpful materials that demolish these lies and hopefully can reach these people with the good news. We'll be right back. Then we're going to South Africa after that. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on The Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire. So, James in Atlanta, obviously you overcome evil with good. You overcome hatred with love. So, in your own example, people hear them preaching, hear you preaching, you interact with them. Let it be seen that you're the one that's gracious and patient and kind and they're the ones yelling, screaming, cursing you or others. Let the contrast be seen. And obviously they don't have the power of the Spirit behind them. And then lift up Jesus the Savior, not to lawlessness, but by the law now being written on our hearts. A, a couple of you, there's more and more stuff coming out about them now and about the errors. Uh, one, uh, one book that'll then lead you to others, Vocab Malone. Uh, you may know him popular on YouTube apologist vocab malone so the book provocative title to draw people in barack obama versus the black hebrew israelites all right so that'll give you some background into black hebrew israelites barack obama versus the black hebrew israelites there are other stories of people that have come out i'm just looking at some of them online um a gentleman that's that's done a lot of work about christians being under the law uh, rl solberg check out torahism T-O-R, so Torah and then ism after that. Torahism, are Christians required to keep the law of Moses? 
that'll give you further ammunition. More and more people are producing materials to deal with this. This has been on the streets for so many years, but as they've grown in influence, materials are being produced. All right, so hopefully those will be some good resources, and may the Lord use you to win many hurting lost people in the city of Atlanta. Thank you. All right, uh, let us go to Jonathan in South Africa. Thanks for calling the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much for taking my call. I really appreciate it. Sure. Um, I wanted to ask you, I've been listening quite a lot in the last few weeks about the discussion on, uh, you know, cessationism versus continuism. And I'm a continuist. I fully believe, as you do, that the scripture is clear, that the gifts of the Spirit are in operation for for today. They've, They've never ceased. What I wanted to ask you is, in your view, and I, and I have no doubt, I've heard you speak about, we, we know the Spirit is at work in, in the church today, in the world today. So often in the West, in the church, we, we don't see a lot of the gifts being made manifest. We don't see the power of the Spirit. I mean, I know you were a big fan of Leonard Ravenel. I love Leonard Ravenel. And, you know, as he would say, he'd say things like, the church has never had more machinery. We've never had more money. We've never had more this. We've never had less power. Why do you think we don't see the move of the Spirit as much as we'd like to? Yes, it, it's a question that my wife and I chatted about for a few minutes today. So in other words, always on our mind, uh, when I wrote Whatever Happened to the Power of God in 1991, that was a major question I was asking. Now, let, let me preface it by thanking God for what He is doing around the world. On, on the yeah. one hand, there's never been a time when more people on the planet believed in the gifts and power of the Spirit, and there were more documented miracles than we're seeing, just because there's so many charismatic Pentecostal believers and others that just have prayed and seen God work. So amazing things are happening, and, and that should encourage us that God is at work. And there are pockets where different parts of Africa, different parts of Asia, different parts of, of Latin America where churches are growing extraordinarily in numbers, and much of it flows out of signs, wonders, and miracles. I was reading one pastor's account in Nepal, which is a Hindu kingdom with persecution of believers, and he said the way the churches grow is that the people bring to the churches the ones that the hospitals can't cure, and when they get healed, the people become believers. So thank God for what he is doing, but why don't we see more? One reason, I believe, is that we don't earnestly see God in, a, in as purposeful and focused a way that it's just not that important to us. Another is just so much sin in the camp and so much complacency that, that God does not come where there is not real welcome for him. You know, come out from among them and be separate. And then God gives his promises at the end of Second Corinthians, the sixth chapter. I believe that's a lot of it. We have so much else that we depend on. Uh, so it's wonderful yeah. that we have the, the medical care we have and the nutritional options that we have so, so we can live to be 70, 80, 90, etc. And other parts of the world, people are dying at 30 or 40. But that's where you tend to see more miracles because they can't depend on everything else. So I, I think that's part of it. And then others, we, we simply don't know why we don't see more, but we have to just press in it until we do. So the good habit is to acknowledge what God is doing, to read about it, you know, read Craig Keener's book on miracles and, and others to, to see what God is doing and to be encouraged by it and blessed by it. 
to build your faith and then to say, Lord, this is wonderful, but there must be more. This is wonderful, but yeah. why do we see so few cancer healings? And, and why don't we see more, more conditions like this or that healed? You know, and, and it's interesting that I, I've seen a lot of accurate prophecy over the years. I've seen gift of faith operate supernaturally at times in my own life. Uh, words of knowledge and things like that. Other aspects of gifts that are clearly supernatural and can't be explained away. Uh, and then even miraculous intervention, but often not as much healing as, as I believe we should see based on the word. And compassion, this compassion moves you, let alone the glory of God, but compassion moves you to say, Lord, let there be more. So let's keep pressing in, hungering, thirsting, obeying, believing, building our faith until we see God do everything he's promised. Thank you very much, Dr. You are, Ron. That was you, very helpful. You are very welcome. Thank you so much. All right, let us go to Joseph in Philadelphia. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Good afternoon, Dr. Brown. Thank you for taking my call and for everything you do. Sure. I, uh, I uh, Going back and forth between uh, Luke's account and Matthew's account on the uh, Lord's Prayer, mm -hmm. uh, shortly after uh, Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer to the disciples in Luke's account, not long after, he says, he adds, and they're still right there, still huddled together. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, in that account, the Lord's Prayer ends with, in Luke's account, ends with, but deliver us from the evil one. Is it possible that it's your Father's good pleasure to give, give you the kingdom is parallel with, for thine is the kingdom, rather than addressing God, he actually turns to the disciples, for thine is the kingdom, talking to the disciples? Yeah, that. so that's that's a really interesting uh Question: I, I don't believe I don't believe so. It, it's a fascinating observation, but you've got from Luke 11, uh, uh, early in the chapter where he's teaching them to pray, and and I know you, there's there's a whole uh, sequence of, of events that are connected there. But you're all the way in what is it 12:32? Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Um, I, no, I I don't see that as connected to to the prayer uh, in in any way. And there is the dispute in, in Matthew in the sixth chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, whether, whether the final words, yours is the kingdom, the glory, the honor forever, uh, whether that was an original part of the Lord's Prayer added after. But for sure, they both began with this, the same petition that God's name would be held and his kingdom would come. So the kingdom's already there. And, and he's been talking about it and preaching about it uh, already in Luke's gospel. Uh, so that, that's, a, that's a theme that's common already. So I, I don't see that as an appendage that comes in later or is, is connected in that way. But thank you. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it. All right. Time is short. Let's try to get in another call. Uh, Tony in Chicago. Time is short, so please join right in. Are you there? Yes. Go ahead, All please. Right. Yes, I am. All right. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Dr. Brown. Um, so uh, I, my question is about... Zionism, uh, and, and please uh, uh, need your help on this one. So, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was originally there to form a state of Israel, and since the state of Israel has been formed, I mean, I want to preface this by saying I am a supporter of Israel. I'm not looking mm -hmm. to, to, you know, take any, any shots at all. But now that now that they, they the, the state is there, uh, I was wondering what is the relevancy for that brand, you know, for that term to still be there. Now it's like to protect it, just the end of time. I mean, is there ever, you know, I mean, I look at the Armenians and, you know, when they got Armenia, you know, I, I don't know if they have like a, like a similar thing going there. So I guess what, what got it. What my yeah. So tell you what, I, I've, why, I'm, yeah. 
I, I understand the question, and forgive me for interrupting, but this way I can give you an answer. Is that okay? Okay, sure, great. Sure, go for it. Uh, all right, great, because time is very short. Okay. Uh, the, the Zionistic hope was long before Theodore Herzl. In, in other words, traditional Jews for centuries would say next year in Jerusalem when they'd have the Passover meal and the longing to go back and the praying for the rebuilding of the temple. So this, is, this has been a longing in the heart of the Jewish people for centuries and centuries and centuries. There's the modern Zionist movement with Theodore Herzl being a key player the, the turn of the, of the 20th century, end of 19th, turn of the 20th century. But here's, here's the issue. You say, okay, the state's established, but it's still not recognized by much of the world. That even though it's recognized, it's not recognized. There, there are still attempts to delegitimize. There are still attempts. There's the ongoing line, you know, from, from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free, which means get rid of the Jews. You, you have Hamas, Palestinian Authority, to different degrees, recognize or don't recognize Israel's existence or right to the land. So it's still under dispute. Even moving our embassy to Jerusalem, we're, we're one of the only ones that have done that, even though Israel says this is our capital, it's the only capital on the planet that the rest of the world doesn't recognize. So, and you still have about half of the Jews of the world not living in Israel. So there's still the Zionistic movement for Jews to return, but there's still the Zionistic movement because so much of the world does not recognize, especially the Muslim world, the legitimacy of the modern state of Israel. Hence, there is still a Zionist movement. So it's a great question, but I believe that's the answer. All right, friends, visit us at askdrbrown.org. Make sure you get our emails. You don't want to miss a one. God bless. Another program powered by the Truth Network.